بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم وصلى الله على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم. This is the Travelers Podcast. I'm Brother Ali. And I just really want to thank you for being here because I love doing this. I love doing this show. It's a labor of love. It's a lot of work. But I've wanted to do it forever. I've talked about doing it forever. I've envisioned it, imagined it, dreamed about it. And when you make that initial step, you know, people talk about the fact that that first step is the most important and it's also the most difficult. And it's true. And it's the most difficult because of the fact that when you're imagining something, that's all you have to do is just envision and, you know, just hold these images in your mind of what it might be like. But then the second you start doing it, it's like, okay, this is not my imagination anymore. This is real life now. And you got to wrestle with and really sit with the gulf in between what you thought you were going to be and what it really is. And so it's the most difficult because of that, because the ego feels really good about imagining. <laughs> the ego is like, I'm actually going to be the most amazing person that's ever done it. Then the second you start doing that thing, it's like, no, you're actually going to be a beginner like everybody else. And so the ego loves imagining and it hates beginning. And so it oftentimes will come up with all these excuses to make us hold up and wait. And well, once I do this, then I'll start. Once I do this, then I'll start. And then once you start, then the ego starts just getting kicked because it's like, you are not what you thought you were. You got to earn that just like everybody else. You might have certain skills. You might have you know, certain talents. You may have certain gifts. You know, If you're like me, we're very blessed that we have people that already are tuned in to hearing my voice and that I have friends that people are, are interested in. You know what I'm saying? So those are major things. Like if you already have a platform, you're starting on second base. You're not starting on third base, but you're starting at least on second base, or, you know what I'm saying? Or at least first base. You're, you're, you're coming into this thing already having some groundwork and some foundation there. But man, doing a podcast is no joke. It's, it's an uphill battle. It's very slow. Uh, it doesn't happen overnight for a lot of people, you know, unless you'd get a deal with somebody. And we didn't even shop for that. We probably could have done that. But me and Brendan, my first DJ, my partner, my dear friend, the producer on this podcast, the partner in Travelers Media, we decided we wanted to start this thing from scratch and just do it from the beginning and do it the way that we did our career in music. And I've learned, I'm so grateful that I got to learn. You know, you always think about, I'm going to be a parent and I want to have a son and it's going to be like this and I'm going to raise them like this and I want daughters and I'm going to raise them like this. And, you know, then you have a son and you got daughters and it's not what you thought it was going to be. Player, you got to, it's going to be whatever this journey is. And it's so fun to think about it. But then once you start doing it, it's different. It's not that. But it's the it's the hardest step, but it's also the most monumental step because when you take that step, you transition immediately from being somebody who's imagining to somebody who's actually doing it. And somebody that's doing it is always better than somebody imagining it. You're all, that's a better, that's an objectively better thing to be doing. And then once you get in there, then you can start growing, you can start refining, you can start fine tuning, you know, you, you just start finding your space in it but it takes a minute. Um, man, we've had some great guests. We've had some great episodes. I'm really grateful. Last week, we had a super dope episode with Amanda Seals. Amanda is probably, you know, I would say in terms of like what's going on in her career and her life right now, she's one of the most prominent people and just kind of popping, you know, people that we've had on the podcast. 
And man, she just went out of her way to do this really dope uh, Instagram story thing where she was like, she just said really beautiful things about your brother here. And she said really great stuff about the podcast. And that really means a lot to me because Amanda knows what she's talking about. You know what I'm saying? She got into comedy and got an HBO special, start, got into singing, and she was part of Flowetry for a while. Got into rhyming and was on a Q-tip album. Got into, you know, uh, writing and ended up being an author. And she has her own podcast, Small Bites. Check all of that out. You know what I'm saying? She got into acting and was on Insecure. You know what I'm saying? One of the most amazing, like, uh, platform for Black women Started out Issa Rae doing Awkward Black Girl, and then that grew into Insecure on HBO. Amazing. You know what I'm saying? So for her to say that about the show means a lot to me. That type of encouragement, that acknowledgement, that validation, you know what I'm saying? That's stuff that really keeps a person going. So thank you very much, Amanda, for that. This week's episode is some one that I've really been looking forward to. And it's powerful because not only of who our guest is, Merce, Merce, for anybody that's familiar with underground independent hip-hop music, if you're familiar with West Coast hip-hop, um, in any of its forms or facets, Merce is somebody whose name is on your radar. And probably Merce had something to do with some of your favorite music, and you might not even realize that. But Merce came up with this underground independent juggernaut called The Living Legends. Amazing crew talking about The Grouch and Lucky I Am and PSC and Eli and, you know what I'm saying, Aesop, The Black Wolf, and on and on and on and on. Scarab and Sunspot, the whole crew. They, they even had a, a, a Japanese brother named Arada. I never got to meet Arada, but Scarab, you know what I'm saying? Shout out to the whole crew. Living Legends is one of the pioneering foundational forces in underground hip-hop music. And we get into that history a little bit, and we talk about their influence on the rest of the game and the rest of the culture. But then Merce went on to work with all of the hip-hop pioneers and legends, especially on the West Coast. So Merce grew up, anybody that knows Merce knows his favorite artists are E-40 and um, DJ Quick. And Merce did records with E-40. Uh, DJ Quick mixed an entire album that Merce did, you know what I'm saying, when he was on Warner Brothers. Amazing, amazing stuff. Uh, Merce has been part of many of, if not all of, he's had some sort of interaction with a lot of the really important powerhouse crews and organizations within underground hip-hop music. So Merce was, you know, started with Legends, Living Legends and Legendary Music. Uh, Merce also worked with Def Jux, you know, the, LP, the, the the label that was run by the great LP. Uh, Merce also worked with Rhyme Sayers, with Felt. You know, Merce and Slug from Atmosphere did, have done several projects together. The, the, the group they have together called Felt. Merce also, for several years, was on Strange Music, which is another powerhouse out of the Midwest, uh, talking about the, the label of the great Tech Nine. And then for a while, Merce was on uh, Warner Brothers, and he's released music on his own. And Merce worked with Dame Dash, like Merce released music with Dame Dash, you know, from the great Rockefeller legacy. So Merce has done amazing things. Merce also curated the first underground un uh, independent hip hop festival, talking about Pay Dues. Pay Dues was some of the first festivals that I did, some of the early ones that Atmosphere did. Merce was the first one to put Macklemore on a festival, first one to put uh, Nipsey Hussle on a festival, first one to put TDE and Kendrick Lamar on a festival. Merce has done incredible things, man. 
Mercer's done incredible things. But so it's just wonderful. And he's also one of my oldest and dearest friends. He, you'll hear that he was on the first tour. He's one of my first early, early mentors and teachers in how to really do this as a career. And he taught me so much. And he was there on my first tour when I kind of lost myself, you know. But this also is important timing because Merce just announced, he just released a song that's called um, The Beginning of the End. And Merce is saying that uh, this is going to be his swan song that he's gonna release music, working up to a few more bodies of work that he's gonna release. He's got a few more albums coming, but it's it's really feeling like within the next year or so, Merce is going to bring to an end the part of his career where he makes, releases, promotes new music. He's gonna stop doing that. you know. And he's also had one of the most prolific careers of anyone in hip hop. This guy's made a song about everything. This dude has made music with everybody. This dude's made music with Snoop Dogg and you know all in everybody. And now he's saying that he's going to bring that part of his career to a close. So it feels like particularly important timing to have him on the show and to be able to talk to him. You know, so uh, this is going to be two parts. You know, uh, we had a really long conversation. Merce, I'm, I'm in Istanbul in my studio office. Merce is in South Central LA in his studio office. So we're doing it remotely. And you're going to notice that there's not video. We opted not to do the video for this one. Um, I'm just kind of experimenting with it. There's something about, you know, I'm not super comfortable on camera. I don't love the the, the visual aspect of making music, of having conversations. I'm partially blind. I'm not a visual person by nature, but I love talking to people. I love relating. I love hearing them. I love their voices. I love Merce's voice. I love the way Merce talks. All of my friends, everybody I love, they all have really unique voices. You know, It's hard for me to be interested in a person that doesn't have kind of a really unique voice. So please enjoy this first of, of two-part conversation with me and my dear brother, the great Merce. It's always a trip, like talking to the people that I know and love the most. The whole idea of the podcast is to talk to people that are amazing human beings that do amazing things in the world. But because I'm blessed to know them, I know that they're as amazing in life as they are in whatever their format is for how they bless the world. And so you're at the top of all of those categories. Like as an artist, you're at the top of those categories as a human being. But also, I think that you are low-key one of the most important people in hip-hop culture, and particularly on the West Coast, and particularly in the underground, but not limited to those spaces at all. Like I think you're one of the most important connectors and visionaries and community builders. Um, you're one of those people that really is you're a brick in the wall, but you're also, you've, you've done so much mortaring of like pulling things together and holding things together that I've said, I've said publicly and privately for a long time that, you know, may God give you a long life. But I think you're one of those unsung heroes that were you to pass away before we would expect it. The outpouring of love and the stories and where people would start to piece together all of the things that you've done. I think only then would it really be seen, you know, all all that you've mm -hmm. really contributed to 
the music and the culture and the community of all of this. So you're one of the people that was at the top of the list when we decided that we wanted to do this podcast. Thank you, my brother. It's an honor um, to to do this with you, man. I think I heard you're really good at it when you said you were doing it. I was like, okay, he's going to be good at this. And I called Sean before I did it. And uh, I was like, man, what should I expect? What should I do to make sure I don't mess this up? And he's like, just be you because, man, he's really on to something. Like, he's doing great with this. He's great at it. I had a great time. So, man, it's it's an honor just to be able to have some of your time as a father. Um, I know that, you know, whenever I get a time with a, fa- a good family, man, I'm grateful to his family um, because it's taken away from your real purpose. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Or, your, or your other purpose, you know? So thank you to your ladies in your life. Man. They're making a sacrifice. And, you know, because you're serving. You know what I mean? This is not, I won't name names because I don't want to start conflict, but there's a lot of podcasts where it's just um, masturbatory. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's a platform for others, but really it's a platform for that personality. Right. And um, I, I know you are, are a true, true, pure, pure person. And so thank you. Man, that means a lot coming from you. Speaking of family, um, I know that you are one in a long line of black entrepreneurs in your family. So what's the, can you like walk us through that lineage? How far back do you know? And how many of them have been entrepreneurs? Uh, For years, I thought it was something that wasn't. Um, But it starts with Ed Bowers, who apparently married rich. A very smart man that got with a very strong and wealthy woman, supposedly. And Ed and Basha Bowers gave birth to Nolia Bowers, who gave birth, uh, and I can't think of Nolia's wife right now, and it's, it's, that's offensive and I'm sorry. Um, but Nolia gave birth to my great-grandfather, who's Andrew Bowers. And Andrew gave birth to Horace, who was my grandfather, who gave birth to Vivian, who was my mother. And out of all of those people, from Ed marrying Basha and helping her maintain the land that she inherited, he took care of that land, passed it down to Nolia, who passed it down to Andrew, who passed it down to Horace, who passed it down to my mother. And, you know, we are currently developing our land there. But all that land has stayed in the family. My great grandfather is the only one that I knew physically, had time to spend with. And he stayed, he lived a long time. So he had 13 children. I believe all 12 of them graduated from college, most of them from Florida A&M University. Um, all of them went on to do well. Um, my grandfather is the only one that didn't graduate because he was a firstborn son. Uh, so he got up to third grade. And then uh, my grandfather was, my great grandfather was such a powerful member in the community that they just passed my grandfather through school. Mm. So he was able to, and eligible to go to Morehouse on paper. But really, he'd been plowing since he could walk. And then, you know, people tell those stories, but I've seen the actual picture of my grandfather at about two and a half, three years old, standing next to a mule in a plow. Crazy. And um, I ate the fruit from the land. I, you know, picked eggs with his mother, um, you know, took pigs and cows to the slaughterhouse and saw how they ran their business. They had, a, I believe they had a, a some type of general store or just supplied that community, black and white folks were dependent upon Mr. Bowers for a lot of their income. And my grandfather, knowing that his father was basically the man in this small town, was saw a little white boy call his father a boy. Mm. 
when that man, that boy, that little white boy's father was buying stuff from my grandfather. Mm -hmm. And my grandfather knew then that no matter what he did, he would never be able to gain the respect. So he left the South. Mm. And uh, he came to South Central and he, like Ed ba Bowers did so long ago, married a woman who's, he got to South Central after having some whatever in New York, got to South Central and met a woman, walked, right, walked up and down the street, 40 blocks until he found a job and he found a white man that said, uh, do you know how to press clothes? And my grandfather said, sure. And uh, two hours into it, the guy said, you don't know what you're doing, but I like your ethic. If you work for free for the next two weeks, I'll teach you the business and you could be a manager. Mm. Then he learned a dry cleaning business, got a job at my grandmother's father's, father and mother's cleaners, um, clean, it wasn't called Bowers Cleaners. And uh, my grandmother, Liked him, he liked her, and he ended up buying the business from my grandmother's father. And through that, he grew the business. And I say, I say all that to say, I'm from that long line of entrepreneurs, and I'm sitting in my studio, which is on the block in South Central, which is named after my grandfather, which he still owns, which my mother still owns and operates the business. And pretty soon, I'll be owning and operating this business and this block. Incredible. In South Central Los Angeles. Incredible. Long, sorry, long answer. Nah, man, long answers are, that's that's what we're looking for. That's amazing, man. So you grew up with your mother being a business owner, living in South Central. And I know that there was always some kind of tension between her like desires for who you and your brother Nate would be. You know what I mean? <laughs> she had like, she had a vision for like what this was going to look like. You know what I mean? And then, you know, here you come into hip hop and into all this like other type of, you know, uh, <laughs> black power stuff that doesn't necessarily come from the like entrepreneurial side. But, you know, can you talk, talk to me about like when you were young and what that relationship was like with your mom? Man, my mother and I have had it out. So my mother, when I was born, we worked at the cleaners. Um, and we never, we never lived here in South Central. We've lived all around. So I, I was born in Mid-City. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, my grandfather was a typical male from that era. You know what I mean? As far as how he treated his wife and things. And he had his definite flaws. And so my mother grew up with a flawed man. So she sought out a flawed man. But as you said, like they pulled my grandma, my mother was uh, whatever the runner up valedictorian was at Los Angeles High School. And the Panthers were very active around that time. And they called my mother and like, well, you're the smartest black girl in school. Tell us what you think about the Panthers. And my and my mom said, who? So that's how involved with the struggle my mother was. <laughs> because <laughs> and that's and also that that's how in tune the Panthers and black activists seem to be with the true powerful. My grandfather is a black man who now the biggest shootout and why SWAT was invented was to stop the black Panthers, Bunchy Carter, Geronimo Pratt on 41st and Central. Mm -hmm. I am literally 14 blocks from there. Mm -hmm. They chose to hold that place down, but never made a connection with my grandfather who owns this entire block. Mm -hmm. And they're seeking to fight. I won't say for fighting's sake, but they're seeking to fight with college-educated people and young young people they're trying to educate, but they never sought out. Like, my grandfather's not a sellout. If the Panthers that came to him with a plan, it might have been more successful with more financial backing, mm. with capital. Mm. 
you know. But here my mother is 14 blocks from one of the biggest and most epic battles and 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 uh strongholds in the BPP organization and they're not reaching out to the community like that. Um she has no idea who they are. Mm-hmm. Um because she's she lives on the west side. We work here but we live on the west side but the Watts riots, our cleaners stood still, no one burned it. The 92 uprising, no one burned it because people know our community. So it's just, it was, it was weird to me that my mother didn't know it, but there's two different ways to fight this struggle. We're fighting for liberation and freedom. And my grandfather fought by getting up and going to work every day and making sure his daughter and his sons were educated. Um, but never once were they assimilated, were they, you know, my grandfather went to a black church. He kept his business in the black community. He didn't look to work for a white man. Um, you know, my grand, my, my, my great grandfather was really, you know, you know where I get it from. My great grandfather was cool. He did business with white people and was cool with white people, but went to a black church, kept everything, sent his kids to HBCU, like a lot of kids, like a lot of our family went to fam, you know, kept everything black owned. He never sold his farm to white people, blah, blah. But my great grandmother, you couldn't bring white people in her house. They would come to do business with my grandfather, and she'd say, get them crackers off my porch, Andrew. Mm. Straight up. Mm. No games. So we're, you know, make no mistake, we were very black. And that's why, to me, there's a disconnect on how the Panthers and everyone don't connect with my grandfather or, you know, and because he doesn't march or he doesn't make signs or he won't wear a beret, but he's a very pro-black and, at the time, wealthy black person that loves black people. Mm -hmm. So I grew up loving black people, but my family were far from activists. And uh, my mother also was not making the best choices for black men because I don't think her father was. And maybe that's why, like my grandfather, you know, he drank, packed a pistol. Like he was not, he was not, you know, he just told me a story recently where they tried to unionize dry cleaners. And, you know, it's, it's, it's the size of the struggle. If you talk to a socialist, pro-black activist, liberal person, they're going to tell you, oh, unions are great, but it's not great for a small business. Because it was a white man basically forcing my grandfather to join the union and pay them dues when he was fine. Mm-hmm. And he was treating his workers just fine. Mm-hmm. But he was cleaning pieces at a lower price. And the white people wanted to raise the prices. But he's like, to serve my community, I can't join a union with you where you're going to regulate my cost because we're serving two different communities, bro. Mm-hmm. Not, they're not, let's start a local 762 just for this area. They weren't trying to do that. And uh, so he came out, he said, okay, well, he pulled up on my grandfather's cleaners and said, uh, here are the picket signs. Until you join, we're going to be out here with pickets. And my grandfather said, how many people you got out there? He said, we got about six more people. He's like, good, I got six more bullets. Pulled out his revolver, loaded it, and said, I'm going to kill each and every one of you motherfuckers you set up in front of my building. And that was the last he heard from the union. <laughs> so that was my grandfather. So right, I'm like, yeah. I'm like, Bunchy, holler at cuz. Yeah, like, yeah. He might be with all the stuff you're talking. Right. Um, but they that's how they keep us separated. Because to them, because my grandfather owns something and he pays taxes and he employs people and, you know, he, you know, my my family still cleans the LAPD uniforms, you know? It's so funny that we have undocumented people using our business and ICE agents using our business. Um, you know what I mean? Some of the biggest gangsters in the neighborhood have been brought their clothes in because their khakis have to be creased and stuff. And the LAPD bring in, the sheriffs bring in uniforms. So I've always kind of had a more balanced point of view on on things. So, but, so yeah, so my mother wasn't making, you know, best choices. My grandfather was flawed you know, violent, he drank, 
um, but still very, you know, at the core, very Christian and and trying to do the right thing. She chose bad dudes. My, my father was a bad dude. My stepfather was a bad dude. Um, so I don't even know if our relationship got to be. Definitely, you know, my mom is not one of my little friends, you know, <laughs> that that traditional black Right, you know, I'm, you're gonna I'm get not one of, of your that. little friends. You're gonna get, also, a, you're gonna get enough of trees. You're gonna get here. You're gonna get enough. Of, enough of, <laughs> yeah, like I'm one of your little friends. Right. Black women do not play, and they are not your little friend. And um, so that was that. It wasn't that wasn't our relationship. Like I know a lot of uh, this new next generation of Black Americans have. Like my mama had me young. That's like my sister. That wasn't that. But at a certain age, I kind of became the protector of my family and my little brother because we were in. You know, domestically, be physically, verbally abusive households, and I had to step up and be like, "This is my family." And at one point, I had to tell my mother, "Like, this is my little brother, and I got to take him away from you if you don't take us away from this." And that was kind of our come to Jesus moment. Um, but yeah, we lived in Midtown. Then we, between husbands, lived with my grandparents, like a lot of Black folks. And um, but, you know, my grandparents house was was nice. My grandfather did. You know, what I mean, it was a nice house in West L.A., which was still a black community. So we weren't living with in the Jewish community, which is a couple blocks over. And we weren't living in the Crenshaw district, which is a couple blocks this way. It's just kind of it's both. But it's definitely still gang infested, definitely still heavy with, with um, vic, you know, victims of the crack epidemic. Um, but my mom still like my mom has really been. So around the time we got out of the second relationship, we got to back to L.A. because we couldn't afford to live in the in the valley where, you know, I had like a three year respite from gang banging and and um, street culture. And she was like, I'm going back to the cleaners. And I would as as we do in my family, even before she went back to work at the cleaners, as soon as I got back to L.A., I was working at the cleaners. And I was like, Mama, we are making eighty nine dollars some days. This is 1990, summer of 92, right after the uprising. It was bad. Everything around here burnt down. The grocery store in the corner burned down. Um, everything but my grandfather's block had burned down. And we were not, no one's getting dry cleaning done after a whirlwind like that weeps, reaps, you know, runs through your community. And I'm taking the bus after school every day and working with my uncle. And I'm seeing what was going on. My mama, we are going to starve if you quit Kaiser and work at this cleaners. And she's at the same time telling me, and I didn't get the perspective, but, you know, Ali, like, we thought EPMD was cool. KRS-One was cool, but they weren't rich. You know, <laughs> they weren't making a living, <laughs> you know. Right. So my mom was like, you're going to die broke if you become a rapper. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, we're going to die broke if you become. And we both said, but, you know, politely, fuck you. I love you. Fuck you. I love you. And we both went on to be wildly successful. Um, she turned our family business around. Got a lot of contracts with different places. You know, like we've done the dry cleaning for Grey's Anatomy, the TV show, for almost two decades now. Amazing. Um, she went to USC Business School and got a degree from there and just really worked hard. And I went on to do what I do in music. And uh, we always talk, joke about it now. Like we both. But what, 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 what my family does all the way back from Ed and Basha, why I know all this history is because we have a family reunion every year. We're on our 108th family reunion and we all go somewhere to meet and every other year we go back to Bascom and we get together and we tell these stories. And so I always had a very strong sense of who I am and respect for my mother. So even like I said, it was a fuck you, but I still love you. Me and my mama, we never, you know, my great grandfather always said, you don't go to bed angry. You never don't say I love you. You don't not say your prayers. Like all of that was 
drilled into me every summer on a massive level. So I thought, oh, it's not my parents that are weird. All my uncles and aunties tell their kids that all my cousins know this. And we didn't have a lot of the, I'm j- we're just getting to the generation where a couple of us have been to the pen, but I didn't have uncles in jail growing up. I didn't have cousins in jail growing up. You know, they went to fam, you know, which was weird for LA because I don't, there's no black college here. So I didn't, you know, I knew that through my cousins. And it was funny because we didn't see each other for a couple summers. And my, I didn't go to one family reunion because my mom was like, if you don't cut your dreadlocks, you're not going to go. All this African, you don't eat pork stuff, got to go. And she got to the family reunion. She came back. She's like, Nicholas, why was your cousins and Kente cloth doing African dances with dreadlocks down their back? Right. And I was like, it's, I was like, it's, it's happening, mama. Like, it's us. And she's like, I was embarrassed. But your cousin, Corey, your cousin, Kadria, like all my cousins was with, with, with the pro-black vibes. I was like, this is what you put into us, and this is how it's manifesting in this generation. And, uh, you know, pretty soon my mom became vegetarian, vegan, and she grew locks. And it just became, uh, you know, so our relationship was it was weird and it was troubled. But at the end of the day, she wasn't built to work. To bring it back to your first thing, like, she wasn't built to work for anybody. I'm not built to work for anybody, as I've been on many labels and stuff. Like, I understand. It's not just—and then my dad, on my dad's side, like, you know, he's— he. He was in the streets. He never worked for anybody. Like on both sides of my family, like I'm not built for the corporate American structure. And uh understanding that is um has been essential to me knowing what I have to do, understanding my mission. Everybody that knows you knows your mom. Like if you're gonna be close with Merce, we all know your mother. Like we've all been to her house. We've all ate her cooking. We've all been asked a bunch of questions. We've all been given advice that nobody ever asked for. We've all been, you know, we've all seen her. We've all gotten off stage sweaty and her be like, you know, like come and try to, okay, does he have a towel? Like, well, who's getting you water? Like who's taking care of you? You know what I'm saying? Like we've all, everybody that knows you and loves you knows your mother knows your current stuff and knows Nate. Like everybody knows, you know what I'm saying? Your family, man. It's a really beautiful thing. Yeah, man. I, I am grateful for them. My mother says hello, by the way. Um, yeah, my brother grabs up everybody, loves everybody. Um, and that was great for me because I didn't have to look for that in the Crips or the Bloods. And I think everyone deserves that, especially people of color, because that's who we are. But even European people, you know what I mean? You have your family crest. Like we all are, look, as human beings, we're looking for that identity. And um, whether you find it in in religion, in hip hop, in the streets, you know, and I had that in my family. Because, you know, the Bow- like Bowers family, we were, we were a gang. We were deep. Definitely there was a clear leadership. We weren't, like, we weren't friends, but we were a team. Me and my brother and my mama were a team. And my grandparents lived down the street. So it was like... For me, like I, I feel like it was more Southern, which is t- still more African, where it was a village. Like they live next door, but my auntie and them live on Washington and Crenshaw. Like my mom, my grandparents live on Pico and and Cochran. I'm on Olympic. Like we can, I could walk to my family's house, and we're always interacting with each other. And in between there, my mom, like you said, she's even not with rappers. Like that's why she used to be like, "Yo, whatever happened to such and such? Oh, you know, he's dead." And because she used to hug and kiss on all these little boys. Because, you know, all of our parents are all over the place. And my mom made sure there were snacks, juice boxes, a weight bench, a basketball. And for me, I made sure there was music. So it was like everyone was at our house. We didn't have a lot of video games. We didn't have cable, but we had basic shit. Mm-hmm. And so it was just, you know, she's that type of woman. It's the Southern. Like, we're very Southern. 
you've made music about every subject under the sun. Like, I don't think there's a subject that somebody could write a song about. If it hasn't happened yet, you're on the job. Like, you, you know what I'm saying? I was talking to Sean Kantowitz and he was like, yeah, me and Merce made a song about, about hockey. And I'm like, of course you did. Of course you have a song about hockey. And, and of course... <laughs> And of course, it's real. And then I started seeing on your on your IG feed, yeah, taking the kids to these hockey games, and I'm hanging up. But if I could say, with all of the different subjects that you've talked and all the things that you've that you've addressed on your records, if there was one through line, in my estimation or in my observation, it would be that you have always embodied um, identities that seem like they're at odds with each other. Like you have these 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 multiple that, that you relate to people in in different walks of life and in different activities and different communities. So when I first met you, it's like this is Merce. He's into punk rock and he rides skateboards and he's into comic books and he's also, you know, what I'm saying he's also from Mid City and he's also you know from a crip neighborhood and you know and all throughout your life, I've always seen you wrestling to be recognized as having these identities that seem like they're at like they have to be at odds with each other but here they are here you are embodying these things how far back does that go like when in in your childhood did you start seeing yourself as having these different identities that you have to somehow synthesize wow i mean early i remember going to um preschool pre-k on pico which is in mid city and um, I, I don't know if it's because my 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 uncle, my oldest uncle, is a um, I don't know how he. There's terms to identify him now, but let's say that he wasn't traditionally on the heterosexual spectrum. Um, I don't know how he identifies, and I hate to speak for him. Um, but he was in a musical, and I didn't think any of it. Now my my uncle's in a musical, ain't misbehaving. And he gave me the satin jacket. It was his satin jacket. It was so big on me, but I loved my uncle. And he was on Broadway. He was in a Broadway musical. I didn't know the... It seemed big to me, and now I know it was big, but it was big to me then. And so was the jacket. And it was bright yellow satin jacket, and I wore it. And kids made fun of me, and my mom would say, like, sticks and stones will hurt your bones, but, you know... Or, you know, in, in pre-K, they everybody brought He-Man or whatever, and I brought Double Dutch Bus on record. And I was just like, you guys got to hear this. Everybody's bringing strawberry shortcake, cabbage patch. And I'm like, yo, this is, you know. And then people would make fun of me even then. Even my homeboys had jokes for me. They were my boys, but they had jokes. And I'll cry and I'll be hurt. My feelings would be hurt. And my mom like, and she's always, and when I came to her, as I got older, I was having these issues. She was like, if unique is what you seek, look no further than my son. That was her line for me. She's like, I've been telling you that and telling people that about you since forever. Yeah, like art really is attractive both as like creatives and as listeners uh, to people who don't necessarily fit in or who, you know, because of either something going on inside of them or something going on inside the world that we're looking for a place that makes sense to us because, you know, you're in a space where you can create your own galaxy and universe to exist in and... Uh, you're also in a place where, you know, in early hip hop, like I just think about the fact that like Kid and Play and Ice T and KRS One and and Rakim and LL and you know Salt and Pepper are all existing in the same world. And for early fans of hip hop music, like you know, all of these things came together and it all made complete and total sense to us. And so I wonder, like, 
how did hip hop really enter your life and when did you first identify with it? Hmm. That's interesting, man. Um, I don't know. You know, it's, it, was, it took me a while to remember. Like, we knew that growing up that all these people operated together. And then in our era, they didn't. And it took me, I was recording with Kwame, and he told me some stories about being on tour. And he's like, it was too short. Digital Underground, me, NWA, Public Enemy, like, Ice-T, like, it was all of us. And I was like, and he was telling, like, because NWA was so wanted, when the police would come to arrest them, he said, him, Kwame said him and Play would go on stage and act like they were NWA. And then Ice Cube and Easy and Ren would all go through the crowd. Amazing. And the crowd would help hide them. And I was like, this was just one huge community at one point. Yeah. Like, you weren't the, the pop rapper. You weren't the weird old blonde guy. You weren't, you know, the effing polka dots. Like, Biggie made it an issue. But for Ice Cube, it wasn't an issue that Kwame wore polka dots. It wasn't corny. It was just, we're all black. Mm-hmm. You know, and for the, and for the police, because the police didn't know the difference. There's two black guys on stage. Yeah. Those are the both that, and then the real black guys are going through a crowd full of black. You know what I'm saying? Like to the police, <laughs> yeah, they're all the same. Yeah. So it was, it was man, but yeah, that I don't know when it was. I, th- I like I said, Double Dutch Bus technically, I guess, was a rap, and I, I crossed paths again with this gentleman, but I'm not going to say his name anymore. But um, a gentleman in my first grade was on on the playground doing Roxanne, Roxanne for a bunch of girls. And he was blowing it. And that was my first battle. I was like, say, man, like, you know, I probably said my N-word. You know, like, you're not doing it right. The song goes like this. Yeah. And I just went into the whole thing. And I could still see it vividly. I could see where the girls were sitting, but I was looking at him. He was trying to impress the girl. And that's, I didn't get that either. Like, a lot of MCs are still that guy trying to impress the girls. I was like, you are not going to dis- desecrate this perfect piece of art with your foul lips, young man. This is how it goeth, you know? And I just barred him up. And I was like, that was my first battle. That was my first, I love this. It was involuntary in me. Like, I love this so much, I can't let, and I guess I had been listening to it enough. And this is a mother who only played Anita Baker or Sade, like did not get down with rap. So I don't know where in the first grade, and I was I skipped a grade, so I'm probably five or six years old. I don't know where I found it in time to memorize this whole song and then know it well enough to correct this young man um, and then be compelled. I was compelled. Mm-hmm. Like one of the first involuntary acts, or just like me choosing the double dutch bus. Like, oh, we're having a show and tell. What do I want to show people? Music. You know, like, um, and it wasn't something where I wanted to be in front of people. I was always shy. I never wanted to rap in front of people, but I I loved it so much that I could not do it because I knew I could do it. And from there, like, it was, I need I need an Adidas suit. I need to spin on my head in front of the TV to learn how to do this. I need to write these graffiti letters until I know how to do it. It was every aspect of hip hop just spoke to me. And it was, um, I always use this in, in interviews, but... When Bob, they interviewed Bob Martin, they said, how long have you been a Rasta? And he said, ever since. Mm. And I was like, bro, you know, and you may feel like that about Islam, you know? But he put it into words. I was like, yeah, I've, I've just been a B-boy ever since. You know what I mean? As soon as I heard, like I said, Double Dutch was like the first inkling of a rap. Oh, yeah, that's me. I'm, I'm with these people. These are my people, um, you know? And I've gotten to comic books, and I really feel at home with nerds, you know what I'm saying? Because I think hip hop is full of so, full of so much posturing. I'm really a hip hop nerd, but I get along with comic book nerds because 
I don't want a conflict. I just want to talk to you and at ad nauseum about rap. But we can't do that without ego within hip hop culture because we're an oppressed people and so on and so forth. So in comic book culture, I get to do that. Mm. And I could talk about Wolverine versus Magneto versus Batman versus blah, blah, blah. And there's no ego in it. Mm -hmm. But if we get into Jay-Z, Nas, then it gets into regions and coast and ego and money and who sold what. Never once does a comic book character, comic book nerd go, well, you know, Superman sold way more issues than the X-Men originally. Right, and right, then right. they put out the second series of X-Men. But in hip hop, we get stuck on money because we don't have it. Mm -hmm. We get stuck on power because we don't have it. Mm -hmm. So I feel at home with nerd culture because I can have these deep philosophical conversations about stuff that doesn't matter. Because, you know, like, I, like it's not God. Mm -hmm. It's not my children. Mm -hmm. But I feel really almost like it is. And I want to talk about with someone who feels this deeply without all the aggression. Mm -hmm. And in nerd culture, I get that. Because at the end, if I'm arguing Black Panther with somebody in there, and then we just end up laughing because it gets silly because it doesn't really matter. Man, I remember... You were you were dating at one point, you, like you were seeing this woman. I won't say her name, but she's a mutual friend, and we all love her and respect her so much. And ever since I met you, you had a crush on her. She's a rapper, and she lived in New York. And we saw like we saw you all together. And I remember my wife was asking her, like, you know, how's how's it going with Merce? Like, man, Merce, we've always known that Merce loved you. And she's like, yo, I I bring this guy through Brooklyn, and he's wearing like a comic book backpack. And like pajama pants, like fluffy pajama pants with feet on them. She's like, I can't do it. <laughs> I can't do it. Let's do it. Yeah. Like, like, you know what I'm saying? Like, you, you're trying to marry these two worlds in a way that was just too much, man. Like, she couldn't, she couldn't do it. When we were in those situations, I would tell homegirl, I'd be like, excuse my French, but like, but none of them niggas won't say nothing to me. And they do, I'll beat the brakes off their ass. Mm -hmm. That's right. Because I've been this weirdo walking through the neighborhood. And you like you got the thing like Eli's mom like Nick used to carry a golf club yeah like I'm not going to like dudes in my neighborhood used to press me like cause why you wear that shit bitches don't like that shit nigga I'm like so you think I'm a homosexual and less of a man because I get up and wear what I want every day mm -hmm. but you let a woman that doesn't even show you affection dictate what you wear and what you say and how you live your life but I'm the bitch right. Check this out. You say something else to me, I'm going to smack you in the face with this five iron. Right. I'm not playing. Yes. And so that's what I was trying to tell homegirl. I was like, it became such a badge of honor to be from the hood mm -hmm. that I'm just really from the hood. Like, you know, and I was going to tell you at the beginning of your podcast, if there are any people who are affiliated with Bloods or Pyrus, I start giving, I'm too old to be watching my mouth and at least too close to me. Like, so he, know, like when I'm doing the breakfast club or whatever, I can not say cuz, but I'm, you're my brother. And you know that that's just how I talk when I'm comfortable. So if anyone's offended, I am sorry. We are, if you know, and now we have words for it, thanks to Millennial. If you are triggered by my language, I apologize. I'm not trying to bang on you. I am not being disrespectful to your set. This is just who I am. Cripping and gang culture is a part of who I am. And I've come and said, I try not to say it in front of my kids because I don't want to carry it on, but it's too late for me, bro. Mm -hmm. And, but yeah, so that's how it was when I was younger with Living Legends. I'm like, cuz, blah, blah, blah. And then, oh, you're, you're, you're just fake. And I'm like, why would I? Be proud of this. I'm proud of it because of who I, but I'm not trying. I was like, I never understood why people would want to be something they're not. But I'm not going to, I felt like I had to deny who I was to make you comfortable. Mm -hmm. And so then we were, I remember being back home when Living Legends were doing an LA show and a bunch of my homies come up and I'm like, what's up? I'm like, I'm chilling. I'm still having a conversation, but I noticed everybody's looking to the left. 
and they are scared. And I'm like, oh, man, this is my niggas. Like, what's up, cuz? Like, you know what I mean? And they're like, oh, you're really... I was like, yeah, motherfucker. Like, I'm... I told you. You know, like, I put out my first tape. It's blue. What, mm-hmm. what, what... Do you think I just created this personality? Mm-hmm. Obviously, I don't use that in my music. If I wanted to fake it, I would use it to sell records. But I'm not into glorifying it, but I'm also not into denying my people. Right. And these are my people, for better or worse. These are my brothers. These are my little homies. Like, like I said, at my house... It's people lifting weights, smoking weed. Like, you know, we listened to Outkast together when my hip-hop friends didn't think Outkast was hip-hop. The first album, Outkast, wasn't embraced. They were Southern playalistic Cadillac music. Like, no one, you know? Mm -hmm. But that was a bridge for some of my real homies that were, like, really living that life. And we balanced it because I saw the artistry. They saw the streets. And it was, so it was, it's always been... Oh, man. What was it like for you the first time you saw the, the brothers at The Good Life? like Project Bloat, like seeing guys like that come from that environment that are also as out there, you know what I'm saying, as you artistically, lyrically, with the content, with the approach. Like, was was what was that moment like for you? It was weird because there were so many people from different neighborhoods and that wasn't, I was like, who, what, huh? It was good to see Black men be unique, but at the same time, we're all still from different neighborhoods. So there was lots mm, of fights. Mm, mm, mm. I, I appreciate the good life because at least those black men gave me courage to be something different. The brothers at the good life gave me a lot. It gave me the courage to be me because I used to try to rap fast like all those guys and they're amazing. And I was kind of the same thing I felt with Ice Cube. Like, why would I get on record and talk about what you talked about? Like, you were ostracized for making gangster rap. You weren't welcome. And now that it's status quo, I got to push the envelope again in order to honor what you did. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The same thing, like, I can't sound like Freestyle Fellowship if I want to honor them. Right. I got to do something different because they did something different. You almost have to buck you know? them in order to honor them because that's the, that's the legacy that they, that, they, that they really gave. Yes. It's really important for a podcast to have the life that it deserves, that you have to dedicate a lot of time, a lot of energy, a lot of effort for it to really be sustainable and to be able to commit to it. You got to have partners, you got to have sponsors, because that's one of the things you got to plan to make it be a long-term, you know, sustainable endeavor. Because it's time away from other things that you're doing in life and, and, and all of the above, you know. So podcasts that really have a life and have legs and go the distance, they have partners, they have sponsors. And it was really important to both me and BK1, the producer and partner in this podcast, that we have sponsors that we really can believe in and that we can get behind, that the, the partners have to be an extension of the podcast itself. They've got to be a part of the podcast. So immediately we started looking for, you know, and talking to and reaching out to people that um, both individuals and services and organizations and products that we really believe in and that are from our community, that are from my community. So 
having Zakat Foundation be a partner on this podcast from the very beginning has been a great blessing to us because of the fact that Zakat Foundation is dedicated to human dignity, to human beings living full and complete lives, no matter what circumstance or situation they find themselves in. Um, so they do amazing humanitarian work all around the world, everywhere that human beings live. And it looks different in each place because of the fact that it's informed by, and whenever possible, it's led by the people on the ground in that community. This is not just like affluent, well-to-do people wanting to feel like they're doing good. Because a lot of times, you know, people go in with great intentions, but they don't understand what's actually happening and all of the different layers of nuance that need to be navigated. So Zakat Foundation has the intention to really make sure that they partner with people on the ground who understand all of that. And it's one of the things that I love about them. Another is that it's an Islamic-led organization, but they don't only serve Muslims and they don't use it, the, the help that they give to proselytize. This is not about converting people. This is just really dope humanitarian work that's just done with a lot of creativity. Like they're also a very creative organization. You know, one of the things that it says a lot about them that they feel like this podcast and the conversations we're having here are part of uh, their efforts to increase human dignity and the opportunity and the possibility for people to live complete lives around the world that conversations with people like Merce and Amanda Seals and Ilhan Omar and Zaid Shakir and uh, Slug from Atmosphere and Chuck D and Cornell West and, you know, and all of the great people, even that we also have coming up on this podcast, inshallah, they understand that these things are all connected because in order for something to really take hold, it's got to become part of the culture. So human dignity uh, becoming and, and really being promoted within cultural spaces, within organizing spaces, in academic circles, in political circles, these connections between people. This is what the work of Zakat is really about. So the fact that they see that and that they understand that it's really creative on their part. And so that's really dope. You know, also the way that they approach their humanitarian work around the world is really incredible. I know the people that are involved, specifically Amna Mirza, but you know, the people that work for Zakat Foundation are people that really look at things from a very unique and authentic and I think very true and courageous lens. So follow them on social media, Zakat US, uh, on, you know, all the social media platforms. You can also head to their website, Zakat Foundation, and check out the amazing work that they do. And when you're feeling generous, when you're feeling like you might need a hit of some just some goodness in life, you know, a lot of us are suffering anxiety, depression. A lot of us are feeling a sense of scarcity. As, as counterintuitive as it might seem, the best thing to do when we're feeling that is to give and to really tap in to directly helping people that might have less than us in certain in certain ways. You know what I mean? To, to really help others is, it's the best cure for the blues. <laughs> I'm not going to say it's a, but it is a form of antidepressant too. It's true. I mean, there's, there are studies that, that show that. So head to Zakat Foundation, you know, $5 give, delivers a hot meal to somebody who, who really needs it. $50 a month sponsors an orphan. That $50 that, that sponsors an orphan also helps their families. 
Um, none of the, that $50 goes to overhead and salaries and promoting and marketing and all that stuff. 100% of their orphan support and relief program goes directly to orphans. It's just a dope organization. So we're really grateful. And I really encourage you to check out Zakat Foundation. One of the newer guests on this podcast and, and partners is Mystic Man Beard Products. This is a company run by an Iranian-American brother, homie of mine, Justin Mashouf, who's also a B-boy. He's also a documentary filmmaker and just all around dope dude. Uh, he's part of the Iman arts community that we've talked about before. Somebody I've known for years and years. Just a really cool, just genuine, sweet, beautiful human being, you know what I'm saying? Father and just dope guy. Shout out to my brother, Justin. Salaamu alaikum. Really happy to have you as a as a partner on a podcast, man. Um, he does this this company called Mystic Man. So you go to mystic-man.com and you can check out this line of products that he has that's for men and grooming. Um, it, he uses cedar, which is also, you know, uh, ancient product or ancient uh, source of healing and of growth. It's got really tremendous uh, medical and medicinal and spiritual properties that are included in these products that f- that help hair growth and also help soften the beard. You know, there's this idea of prophetic masculinity, of sacred masculinity. What does it mean to be a man who is in family and in community and in society and in culture and shows up in ways that are virtuous and beautiful and loving and gentle and strong and compassionate and truthful and respectful and wise and strong. That's true strength. That's true masculinity. When people talk about toxic masculinity, I feel you, but like, I'm sorry, that's not masculinity. That's that's counterfeit. The same way that when people sexually violate each other, that's not sex. Like that's not lovemaking. You know what I'm saying? That's a violation of lovemaking and intimacy. You know what I'm saying? Um, you know, when people uh, abuse other people in the name of organizing or in the name of justice or in the name of community service or in the name of religion, or like that's, it's counterfeit. And what people call toxic masculinity is counterfeit masculinity. You know what I'm saying? And so what my man is really proposing here and promoting here is, you know, by way of men's grooming our beards, and presenting ourselves in ways that are beautiful and healing and, and you know, all the things that I just mentioned, these beautiful virtues of what it can really mean, you know, to show up in, in the world in this way. Uh, but tied in with the idea of mysticism, the idea that we're driven not by our carnal desires, we're driven not by our material reality and just gaining material power. We're driven by something mystical. We're driven by the world of meaning, by the world of spirituality, by the world of um, that immaterial beauty that animates life. So to be a mystic man, this is what my man Justin is about. And I'm here for it, man. When you order these products, these beard care products and these like grooming products for men, they come with a handmade wooden comb that's super ill. It's really dope. Um, You know, it's just those little like personal touches on products like this that really mean a lot. So head to mystic-man.com. When you go to checkout, put in travelers and you get a little something off your order because we're cool like that. And i um, really grateful to have Mystic Man as a partner on the Travelers Podcast. 
You know, for most of us, for most MCs, um, we develop in terms of both our identity and also our skill. So you're like, you know, so you're a person that came in the game with incredible heart. And, you know, so your your heart has always been 1000. So there's you are always undeniable on stage, on the mic. Your skill has grown over time. You know what I'm saying? And in my opinion, your skill level, like I think you're doing the best rhyming of your career in the last like three or four years. But from the time that I'm aware of you making records, you've always had a sense of who you are. Like your identity was fully formed by the set, by the time you start showing up on records. So is that something that was immediate? Like, did you come in sounding like, you know, so I, there, there's a demo tape of mine that's not for sale anymore, but it's from 1999, Rites of Passage. If you go listen to that, I still sound like the last group of people that influenced me. I'm trying to rhyme like Yasin and Kwali and Common and, and Black Thought. And then by the time I got to Shadows on the Sun, I sounded like me. Early Sean sounds like Hyro, you know, so you can still hear the people that he was trying to sound like. Early Ant Beats uh, remind me a lot of Mob Deep. So in most people's early work, you're hearing the last people that really influenced them. To In your music, I don't hear anybody's influence. So did you ever rhyme like other people? Oh, like I, tr I, tr I tried. I was just so bad at it. I tried to like rap like um, AC, Micah, people you never heard of, um, the great L.A. Cool, um, Teaspoon Iodine, uh, Volume 10. Uh, man, there's some... Um, Pigeon John is a heavy influence on me. Mm. Um, Abstract Rude, but Abstract doesn't like Abstract has his own style. He doesn't. He's just a wonder kind. Yeah. Um, it's no. There's no way to sound like Abstract Rude. Like you cannot. Yeah. You can't just, bite Abstract. Yeah. <laughs> he's liquid, bro. He's like a, a supreme, like the T two thousand Terminator that just morphed. Like he's so smooth, bro. His voice, his being. Um, but yeah, so. But that's the thing about the good life too is there's abstract root, there's pigeon John, they're also very different. Um, the ghetto gods, Akim and um and them, like so I'm around five percenters, bloods, crips. There's so much to draw from that I think that I didn't sound like anyone, and biting was just so discouraged. But I don't sound like a project blowed MC. Not even a little bit. And I don't think it's be because early on, the log cabin tapes that some people have, I was trying to and then my homie. Um, pulled me to the side and he was like he's the guy that showed me my first AK my first pound of weed my first $5,000 like he was like look man and he also was a black belt you know what I mean <laughs> and uh, he was like look man I hear the stuff you're doing but that's not you like you're over here with me with this burner this you know this is 1992 with, with a pound of weed a lot of cash and yeah we still listen to Cypress Hill and freestyling but you're in a mix for real, you know? You got hands and I'm teaching you karate. Like, you are built different. Do that. Mm. And that's when I went to, God bless his soul, um, Double K, who was kind of like me. Like, he's around a bunch of Crips. He lived in a rival mm. Crip neighborhood, but we both went to the same school. And he gave me the first beat that I did my first solo song on called Red Dots. And it was me rapping kind of slow, offbeat, not in the pocket, which is who I am. Um... But I wasn't trying to flip the words, and I was telling a story about some real stuff I got into about these dudes who used to terrorize me and bully me and me not wanting to kill them. So I created a creative way to kill them in a song. But it was perfect that Double K was the one to give me that beat because he was too was like me. 
he was like in two different worlds. Like he met Thess and Thess kind of got him out of the hood. You know what I mean? But he went to San Pedro every, you know, whatever weekend and Thess had an MP at Thess. And you know, Mike's mom was, oh man, she's, God bless her. I really got to go see her soon. Mm. Just a, a woman, like everything, I would say, I, you would think that Nate and Double K were brothers and me and and Mike's mom Amazing. were, were you, because Mike's mom had the African dress, dreadlocks down to her knees, crystals. She's smoking weed, brewing a non-chompa. Letting, you know, but she had the same energy as my mom in that we ran up and through that woman's house. You know what I mean? Because she wanted her boys there. But she was very aware of what was going on in the streets. And my mom wasn't as aware. But either way, she found the answer was to keep the boys at home. So when I went to him to do this song, that was the first time. Like my homie, my other homie pulled me to the side. I was like, this weirdo shit. It's cool. You know, and even in then, back then, like, he's from a blood neighborhood. You know what I'm saying? But he was like, it's cool, but it's not you. And so when I wanted to be me, I found another person like me. And there's very few of us at this time, um, which I think now, like, more like a, the schoolboy cues, the Kendricks, the, you know what I mean? Yeah. You can tell they're street influence. Right. But they're still creative artists. And there weren't a lot of us. So I was like, Mike, you know, can I, can I have that beat you made? He's like, yeah. And that was the beginning. So first time I rapped by myself, I was already in myself. And then growing up in the house with my mother, we just had to talk about it now because I don't discipline my kids the same way physically that my mother disciplined me. And I struggle with that because I know that it made me, I don't fault my mom. I got on Kwali's show and he tried to kick that shit about the trauma and blah, blah, blah. Shut up, cuz. Like, you know, like, to to bring to be a man that other men respect, I had to go through what I went through, and I don't fault my mom not because I love my abuser, but because I needed to be popped in my mouth. In the same way, the good life was for me. That was great for me because there were a lot of MCs there that could fight, that were real real niggas, mm-hmm. but also they were really dope. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And if you were whack, they would boo you. Mm-hmm. And that's the equivalent of getting popped in your mouth. That's right. It wasn't a safe space where you. You can get so when I wanted to rap, I had to make sure I was dope and I had something to say, or else I let the OGs talk. So by the time I came out at like I was 16, I had to stand up my mom and be like, What you're not gonna do is yell at me anymore. Mm-hmm. What you're not gonna do is put your hands on me anymore. And I'm gonna be honest with you at the same time. So I'm smoking weed and I'm going to smoke weed. If you have to ground me, then you ground me. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be a rapper. If you have to put me out of your house, then I will leave your house. Mm-hmm. But this is what I'm gonna do. So once I did that to the woman I loved and respected, the being on earth I respected and loved more than anyone else, wasn't a motherfucker that could tell me shit yeah. about anything. Yeah, I'll get on any stage. I'll get on, talk to any police officer, any MC. I knew who I was and I was confident and I was ready to fight. And that's also what the Crip shit brought in me. Like I'm ready to fight and die for who I am and what I believe in. And, you know, and that's just, so by, say, by the time people heard me, I recorded my first song at 16, 17. I was busy refining. Yeah. And I and I could have gotten there sooner had I met people like you and Sean. Because a lot of LA is based on ego and clout. And a lot of all hip, and I don't understand this anti-clout movement. Hip hop is about clout. Get it out of here. You don't ride on a train and risk your life for money. There's no money. There was no money in it. Right. It was for clout. <laughs> like you didn't spin on your head to get a million dollar check. It was for clout. Right. You didn't grab the mic at the house party yeah. for money. Right. 
It was about clout. And the clout could be, I'd rather it, it could be, be about four people. Money. It could be like four people who know what they're talking about, being like, nah, he can rap. No, let no, let him get the mic. He can rap. Yes. It's like, I yes. have the mic. I can rap. Like, you know what I'm saying? That's all <laughs> yes. it takes. That's real clout. That's not, like props is different. Matt, like you're right. It's, it's clout is when it comes from the right people. That's real clout. Like you got clout. Let him in. Right. No, let, let him get on the mic. That's Ali. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like that. And that's what I was doing it for. And there was too much politics in LA. But when I met you and Sean and you were, you know, you're like, you can't rhyme three bars and not rhyme the fourth one, bro. Sean was like, you can't count bars. This is how you do it. Yeah. And I had older MCs around me all the time, but we're too busy competing. So you don't want to help me. But what I really needed someone to do early on was like, you have a voice, but you're sloppy. You're offbeat. Your rhyme scheme is, you know, like I needed someone to hit me with that. And no one was. You know, what's crazy is I remember early on, uh, we were together. It was like right around the time that I first met you. And me and you both used to be much more aggressive. And we both had, I would say, more of a warrior spirit. And we both have done a lot of surviving. And that's one That's one of the ways mm. that we really bonded is like both of us needed to physically survive in a lot of the environments we found ourselves in. But you were arguing with somebody. And I was just there. And I was just like, man, this person doesn't know that if they move funny, like, man, Merce doesn't need me to be here, but I'm here. And I'm going to just start <laughs> biting stuff and breaking stuff. And man, it's going to be a real problem because I can't, I can't, I can't see anything, but man, I know my way around somebody's damn face. What? <laughs> like that was like a lot of our early, our early bonding was based on that. But I remember somebody was like, they, you were arguing with them and they, and, and you were like, wait a minute, do you think I'm lying? And like you had like man, you got this. You get this face sometimes when you're in, like really in heated. <laughs> your eyes get big. Somehow you're like your lips go back and your teeth come out like literally. <laughs> and you were like, "Do you think I'm lying?" And you said, "I haven't lied since my mama stopped whooping me." <laughs> and that was just like such a declaration, man. Of like what you're describing is like, you know, to to be able to have to uh, to have that moment of. Of basically like a declaration to your mother to be like, this is who I am and this is who I need to be. That, yeah, that's she 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 formed me. And we I talked to her about this morning. I was like, I in that, and I when I get angry at my little boys, I realize that it's just fear. Mm. And I was like, I'm fearful that they will not have the tools that you gave me. And I was like, don't let this new world shame you into thinking that you popping me in the mouth was the wrong thing. Right. Because that's not what made me violent. Yeah. What made me violent is oppression yeah. and me having to fight the police right. and fight other black men. That's right. But you didn't make me violent by teaching me my place. That's right. That's right. Like, so I, I, but what you're saying is resonating with me right now because I'm sitting here criticizing the older homies for not helping me. But I was so angry mm -hmm. and such a, well, like you said, such a warrior spirit mm -hmm. that who knows if I would have received it. By the time I met y'all, I was able to receive it. But maybe they were just reacting to the, you know, because right now people, my wife still tells me like, and my son start to do it, that like you walk down the street like you're about to punch somebody in the face. When you're just walking places, my wife will tell me sometimes. Mm -hmm. And now, especially my middle son will do it. Mm -hmm. And it's, and even my older son does it. And, you know, my older son's no, of no blood relation to me, but just walking like his dad. Yeah. And it's, and so I'm like, okay, well maybe I, I, I gave these brothers a space where they didn't think I'd be receptive to their help, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. So I want to, as we talk about, I want to acknowledge that I'm not blaming them. And I'm still grateful for it because I think it all 
you know, like you you believe in the divine, like it's all divine timing, you know. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad when I met you and Sean, I was in a place to receive the constructive criticism in a way that made me a better rapper. I'm saying for us, I know for Sean. So first of all, your relationship with Sean is really one of the most beautiful things I've ever witnessed because, you know, with him, he is so rooted in who he is and it has had to be that way. Um, you know, the the episodes that we did together, especially the first one that he and I did, is really just like, man, atmosphere is based on both Slug and Ant connecting on having similar experiences. Like the fact that these two like black, white and native dudes just happen to meet each other. They're both six foot five or something. They look the same. They talk the same. They got the same, you know, the fact that they met each other and both love music to the same degree is really amazing. But, you know, Sean has had to be his own person and make his own way so much to the point where I don't know if he has a peer in the world as an MC. I don't think that he, there's another like equal in this world, except for you. I think you you are wow. a singular individual in his life, and I think, you know, I think that you know him and Ant have what they have, uh, but outside of that, I think you're his dearest friend. I think you're his closest friend. Wow, I yeah, I struggle with that um, because I never realized how old Sean was. So he's a he's always been an elder to me, but I just thought it was an experience, and then I I was like, oh no, you're really. <laughs> You're really my elder, and that's why you've been talking to me. But I've had to apologize to him on a couple occasions. Um, but overall, I always tell him I'm very so grateful to him. And I, I think when we met you at the time that we met you, because he met you first, and then Mikey met you, <laughs> and then Mikey came back and like told me his experiences. And then um, I think I was the last of the crew to have met you. And I remember thinking, like, man, is this dude going to? I was wondering if me and you were going to have to have a square off moment. Like, I was wondering, like, am I going to have to earn this guy's respect? Because, like, man, I really don't want to have to do that. I think he might even he might be he might be a little more serious about this than me. I don't know. And you walked in, and like, it was just beautiful from the very beginning. I think Sean had given you an early copy of Shadows on the Sun, and you came in and like talked to me about the record, and we were immediate friends. But the thing is that when you, when we entered each other's world, um, you know, you had such a, like we were aligned so much in certain ethics and principles that we all believed in, but you had a proximity to something that we own. You had a proximity to one of the, one of the epicenters of hip hop, you know? And so you're accepting us early and, and um, validating us. And also the way that, you know, you being an independent artist and, you know, the way that you were speaking with us and sharing space with us and all of that, man. I think that, so I think on both ends, it seems like we were different enough and the same enough that we were able to really reflect each other in ways where we could bypass all of that ego stuff. Yeah. I I, I didn't realize that you guys had an ego until I got older. <laughs> and I was like... Oh, like, like this rhyme sayers number one, like, oh, okay. But it didn't rub me that way because it was just pride from people who were told they had nothing to be proud of. I could relate to that. So it didn't rub me. You know, it took me like looking at from, oh, I could see how you would think that. Mm-hmm. Like people had to say that to me to be, and then I had to be like objective and be like, oh yeah. But at the same time, I was like, well, you got to understand 
that no one was trying to hear anybody from the Midwest. Right. And they took pride in something that no one had pride in. And isn't that the essence of our culture anyway? Like, so I was like, that's, I never, I, you know, like when certain members of my circle got with you guys, there wasn't a mutual respect. Mm -hmm. Um, Motherfuckers saw opportunity Mm -hmm. and, and to come up, Mm -hmm. I saw opportunity to build and learn. Um, and to teach, I mean, what you were so. I mean that that first tour, that God Loves Ugly tour, that's coming up on the twenty year anniversary. I mean, that was the first time that I ever was in an, a, a, an environment to be able to see that it was possible to do this for a living. And mm. the fact that I looked up to Sean already, but when you came in, you know, and I think I might be a few months older than you, but I saw you as I've always seen you as a, as an elder, even though age wise that's not the case. You know what I'm saying? Because when you came in, I remember saying like, "Man, I'm so sick of being broke. I'm so sick of so and so. I'm so sick of like I just went through these list of things in my life." And then you were like, "So then stop being broke, and stop being just just stop doing those things." <laughs> Like if you don't like being broke and if you don't like being unacknowledged and if you don't like being unfulfilled, then just fucking stop being those things. And like nobody, like what you're saying about what we said, what what might've been said to you about the song structure or whatever, like in terms of hustling and in terms of like, you're the person that gave me permission to stand on a stage and be like, yo, I know I don't look like it. I know nobody feels this way. But I'm the nicest. I'm the nicest MC here. You know what I'm saying? So after going on stage with, after going on tour with you, we started touring with Brand Nubian and Rakim and Big Daddy Kane and MF Doom and all these like, and just the audacity to stand on stage and be like, yeah, no, and I'm the illest one here. Like I really, you're the person that gave me permission to be that way, and you're the person oh, that man, that made it real for me. Um, you know, to 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 be able to approach those situations like that, so it was such a it's it's That's been such a mutually um, just beautiful thing, man. I, I, yeah, I think if anyone's listening, you have to make it a two way street. It's apparent to me. Mm-hmm. Like I didn't come in trying to teach you anything. I just came in trying to be as I was trying to be helpful. I wasn't trying to teach because that's what teaching is: is being helpful. You know. You were trying to be helpful to me, and it wasn't about what you can get from someone. When I met Mystic Journeyman, Lucky and Sunspot were trying to be helpful to me. Mm. You know what I mean? They picked me up, and you know he's the one that gave me the speech. Like you know, in in different words, but like, do you want to rap or not? Then let's rap. Stop playing. You know what I mean? Like, and 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 Tommy just you know just carried me for so long, so I couldn't help but to give that energy to every other MC I met. Life will teach you through different people. You have to be receptive and open from receiving the help because it's all coming from the creator, if you believe that. If not, it's all coming from the universe, whatever you believe. But your help's not going to come in the way you think it does. It's not going to come from, you know, I grew up idolizing certain MCs, and when I met them, they couldn't pee on me if I was on fire. Mm -hmm. And I thought Mystic Journeyman were whack when I first heard them. And they ended up saving my life and changing my life. And if I lived that ethos that I was living in LA where you're not dope, you're not my friend and blah, blah, blah. You know what I mean? Like I just started making friends with people and found out that was more important and making music with your people you thought you could be friends with and people who were kind and had something to teach me. And I went on that mission instead of who has the most clout. And since then I've seen people use me 
for that. You know, like I thought they were coming to learn something from it, but they're really just to come step on my head and go to the next level, which is fine. But since I've never done that or been that person, I'm like, wow, I thought everyone's going to be like rhyme sayers and we're just going to lift each other up and learn from each other. And, you know, like, oh, like Sean, you come to my house. I'll do an EP with you. Come to your house. You'll do. Yeah, we'll just, you know. And then we'll sell lots of records and we'll make money and blah, blah, blah. And we'll just split it. We'll travel it. the world let's together. Split you know? let's, whatever we make, let's yeah. just split it. I did half the rapping, you did half yeah, the rapping. Like, we'll just split it. He made the beats. Let's give him half. Let's get, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, it's wild, man. Yeah, like we were just having fun. Like LP, like why talk? You know, like we got to a point with Def Jux where he was in debt to me and certain members would call him out and, you know, publicly. And I, would, I always tell people like, even with pay dues, when we got into the red and people, you know, definitely a lot of, to me, unnecessary energy has gone into hating Chang Weisberg. And people are like, he owes you how much? Or he did blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, but if it wasn't for him, I would have never had pay dues. That's right. When I met him, I gave him the idea and said, take it. He said, no, I'm going to teach you. Mm. Um, when no one would give me a chance or a record deal to put my records in Best Buy, LP said, come here. Everything I have since then is because he took a chance on me. I don't care how much money the books say he owes me. He changed my life. And the same thing goes for Sean. Like the summer he took me on Warp Tour and even the earlier stuff, he kept me out of my neighborhood for two to three years. And like- How many people died in that in that time period? Exactly. People died. People went to jail. Things happened. Like people that you were with on a daily basis were dying and going to jail that time. I, re I remember when that was happening. I'm like, you know, and, and it's not like, and that's why I guess my issue comes with rappers because- I'm not that rapper. I'm front line. Mm -hmm. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, no, with no, with no pomp and circumstances, is it, I'm a real nigga. And I'm not talking just in the rap term, like in the detrimental sense of the term. Like sometime at that, especially that time in my life, there'd be a time where going to jail was worth it. Mm -hmm. Where getting shot too was worth it to me in my mind. And that's a nigga mentality. So there's a, a, a negative and a positive light to that. So it wouldn't be like, I would have ran inside. I would have been out there with with all the bullshit. It's been everything to us over the years that we've remained independent. And the reason for that is, you know, it's, it's easy to say, like, I don't want anybody else telling me what to say or what to do. And that is true. But it's a little bit deeper than that. And please spare, just bear with me for a second. I really believe that the creator, the source, the divine has given each of us something very unique by way of meaning and message and reflection and observation each of us is given something that helps us understand what and why, like what it's all about, why we're here, what we're here to do. Each of us is given a piece of that, and then we're given to each other to share those things. And that's really what this podcast is about, is what my music has been about. But, you know, that message and that meaning that's shown to us and that's given to us, it's for us, but it's also meant to be shared and it's meant to be reflected. And it's meant to be understood and experienced in a, in relationship. 
And so, you know, for some of us, we have, you know, the grandmother that, you know, shares space and meaning with her family. Um, you know, some people have their, just a small circle of friends. Some people have one person. Some people have their cellmate. And that's the person that they communicate with. Some people have a pen pal that, you know, but for me, I've had this group of people that have listened to my music, that have come and seen and heard me speak and teach, people that show up for these online learning series that we do, people who, you know, uh, explore Islam with me and my wife in Minneapolis when we're there. And now with this podcast and all of the things that we do, it's extremely important to me that this group of people has not only received, but also has contributed. Like we literally are doing this project together and it's been that way from the very beginning. I've learned about myself and about the thing and about the world from how I've shared in the music and in the shows and in everything else that I just mentioned. And then also what's reflected back to me, the way that it's received and the way that the people that listen and support what we do, the things that you share with me. So it really is a living, breathing relationship. It's That's very, very real to me. And that has to be independent and it really requires us to communicate directly with each other. And so the only real way to do that or the best way that I have to do that right now is on our website. Social media is cool, but social media is a business. And so, you know, on Instagram, I've got, you know, over 100,000 uh, followers. On Facebook, it's 300,000. On Twitter, it's another 100,000. You know, but when we release something, I mean, these are big businesses and they don't just show your content or, or your messages or whatever to all the people that follow you. You would have to spend a ridiculous amount of money to do that. So really, we're not really independent by just communicating on these platforms. They're cool, but that's not really being independent. What really gets it done is for you all to come to brotherali.com and we've got a couple different ways to engage there. The first and easiest one is the mailing list because that's free. All you do is sign it. I, I use it to send out emails when we have a new drop coming, when there's new music coming, when we're about to announce tour dates. We've got new learning series, things like that. I promise you there's no spam. We don't share your information with anybody. And I don't just bomb you with stuff. Like I use it very rarely and sparingly, only when there's something to share. The way that we've been doing our merch lately, and the the only way to get the merch that we have now, the new things that come out, is brotherali.com. There's no other way to do it. It really is, I would say, even a project to explore and deepen that kind of like communal experience that I'm releasing, and I'm not the only one doing this, but I'm releasing smaller batches of the physical material or the, you know, so we make new music and it goes on the DSPs, the streaming services. Anybody can listen for free. That's cool. Making it, but the people that are really want to be a part of it, the people that want to have the vinyl when it comes out, something that they own and that they're part of, I want that to be an experience that's just for the people that are there and that are present. So we're doing, you know, limited, you know, exclusive, limited runs of stuff. But it's just like, this is how many people I think are present and are here for this specific thing that we're doing. So when we do a learning series, for example, it's limited because I want to be able to communicate really seriously with all those people. We do like Blood on Beats, which is our writing workshop. It's a month long. It's interactive. We've got a Slack channel. 
We do weekly sessions that are several hours long. And I want to be able to get to know the people that are in that group. So it's not just, I don't, if I have 200 people in there, I'm not going to be able to really develop a rapport with every single one of them. I'm not going to be present with 200 people. It's just not going to happen. So we limit it. You know what I mean? We have cohorts of like 30 people. And sometimes we have multiple cohorts, but they sell out. And there, every single time there are people that are like, yo, I didn't even know about this until you saying, thank you, this sold, this sold out. Thanks for the support. So it's like, yo, that's the way social media works. So you go to brotherali.com, sign the webs or the uh, mailing list. Also, we've got on there all of the merch, all of the learning series, all the podcast stuff, all the shows, everything is up there. You can get the VIP packages for shows where that's available. But we got a thing that we do called the Caravan. And the Caravan is extremely dope. It's something we developed during the pandemic and we're going to keep rolling with it. It's similar to Patreon, but it's a different uh, platform that's right for our particular needs. And there are different levels. But the highest level there is, um, it's just very special. Like it's actually a little community and it is limited um, and it's not inexpensive. It is an investment. But on that particular level, we have a Slack channel and we have Zoom calls and things like that. And it's a group of people that come from these varying communities that I'm part of and that my music and my voice and my message reaches. So, you know, I don't want to like give away people's identities and their experiences and the different walks of life that they come from. But trust me when I tell you there are people in this group that would never know each other and would never interact with each other, would never engage each other because of how separated society keeps us all. And I'm in these different communities. You know what I'm saying? So I've got like art, like, you know, art friends. I got activist organizing friends. I got, you know, um, you know, friends that are very devout, somewhat orthodox Muslims. I got, um, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, people from really different walks of life. And it's really, really a beautiful thing for people to, to, to get to know each other and to communicate with each other and to, to bond with each other in a space that's really safe and welcoming and affirming of people's just humanity. You know what I'm saying? That like our beliefs are different, our identities are different. The thing, the way we see ourselves in the world isn't always the same, but based on the human experience that we're having, we are affirming each other's humanity. And that's what this whole thing has been about for me. Oftentimes I look out in the audience and I'm like, all right, where's the albino Muslims in this audience? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, where are the it's not about identity. It's not even about belief. It really is just about a very, very human thing. And that's a tremendous honor to me. So head to brotherali.com, check out the mailing list and check out the caravan. We love to talk about products on this podcast that I use. You know, I love talking about things that have really made a difference in my life, things that really matter to me. And especially when the people that we're talking about, and really it's all of them, people that are from our community that offer these services. And these are projects of love. These are labors of love for them. These aren't things that they're getting rich doing. Um, you know, in the past, we talked about Usman the tailor. We're talking about Mystic Man, Beard, Care. Um, and for this particular segment, we're talking about Udimentary. So people are now kind of like relearning. You know, we talk in, you know, postmodernism really is about unlearning. So in, in modernism, one of the things that they did in modernism was to get away, to do away with pre-modern people's wisdom traditions and things that they understood 
uh, from the world of meaning and also from things that, you know, the current science hasn't caught up with yet. And I'm not a person that thinks there's a, uh, you know, that, that spirituality and science are at odds with each other. The Islamic tradition, the Muslims have always been leaders in both. And we believe that both things, they all come from the same source. And so we believe that they all are integrated with each other and we believe in all of it. We don't have this thing of like a difference between spirituality, religion, meaning on the one hand, and then science on the other side. But all that being said, uh, modernism was really about really disregarding everything that can't be measured in the material sense. And so there's a lot of uh, unlearning that happened. And then in, in postmodernism, basically we have this way of like looking at and critiquing and trying to fix what modernism did after throwing stuff away. So we do a lot of unlearning and I'm, I, I believe in that. I dig that. But there's also a relearning, you know, things that, that pre-modern people knew, things that, you know, First Nations and people all around the world, the original uh, Aboriginal people in around the world that they knew uh, that hasn't been measured by modern science yet, but it doesn't mean that it's not true. I mean, these things were were relied upon and were used and were utilized for centuries. And one of them is the power of like burning natural substances, you know, things like, <laughs> and y'all are going straight to 420. You know, people are all for it when it comes to 420. You know what I'm saying? But I, and, I mean, and that's that's in the same family to a certain extent. But what I'm talking about is... Uh, burning things like sage and palo santo and incense and things like that, natural substances, for the powers that they have to reset energy. And even if you don't believe in the whole energy thing, that's fine. We do know that the power of scent has incredible impact on a person and on our state and on the intention and the focus that we have, the experience that we're having. Also, scent has a lot to do with forming memories and making meaning. So, you know, burning sage, burning palo santo, burning uh, incense, those things are really powerful. They have great power. Oud, O-U-D, Oud, is uh, a particular scent that comes from Southeast Asia, there's these wood trees called aloes wood. They're spoken of in ancient scriptures. Aloes wood trees are infected with a fungus, and then they create a nat they produce a natural antibody to fight the fungus. That antibody is one of the most amazing smells if it's extracted that you could ever smell. It has natural healing power, um, and it also, if you distill it into oil and wear it on your body, it creates this amazing scent that really changes the the reality and the energy around you. It changes the experience of people who smell it. I wish there was a way to, to make you smell it. There's not really a way to do that other than going to Udimentary, O-U-D-I-M-E-N-T-A-R-Y.com. When you go there, you'll see that they have a variety of different stuff. You can get some things that are, you can get like medical grade frankincense. That's pretty inexpensive. You put it on a piece of coal, you light it, uh, you let the coal ash over and you put it on top of the coal. It's incredible. It's like nothing you've ever smelled before. And frankincense does have healing power, have healing properties. Um, you know, and the, and the same is true for aloes wood, for oud. Uh, you can distill it into oil and then you can also burn the the actual wood again on a piece of coal. It's incredible. 
And so the money that you spend is an investment. It's well spent. It might not be something you burn every day. You know what I mean? So you may have Palo Santo or you may have incense that you burn on a more daily basis. That's what I do. But for for experiences, for ceremonies, for things that we want to make sacred, it really is a tremendous investment. You burn the oud or you wear it, it gets in your clothes, it gets in your hair, it gets in your drapes, it gets in your carpet, it gets in your body. Like it's just something about this particular scent that's really incredible. Um, I'm longtime friends with the people that run this company. Um, this is not something they're doing to get rich. This is a service they're providing because they know how important it is. You know, one of the brothers that runs uh, this company is a trainer and he's a jujitsu master or a champion, former, former football player. Uh, one of them is a therapist, a somatic therapist, you know. So really incredible stuff. Head to udimentary.com. When you go to checkout, put in travelers and you'll get a discount just for knowing me. <laughs> Word. Check out Udimentary. You will not regret it. You know what's amazing is you you taught me how to interact with white people. Because when, <laughs> when we were on that tour, especially like drunk white people at a hip hop show. Because you remember like the first, especially the first couple of weeks, like yeah. I was getting in fights because I didn't understand. I didn't understand the way that people share space. I didn't, or not like share it, but like invade space. I didn't understand the like aggressive energy sometimes when people, you would be like, no, he was complimenting you. No, he, th <laughs> and I, but I'm like, man, he's grabbing me, spitting on me, he's cussing. It's a, ah, <laughs> <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, that was, those are real things. Yeah, that, that was, happened. Yeah, you were with me when I lost my mind. You were with me during the one point in my life when I legitimately lost my mind, and I'm very happy that you were because all of those early experiences, you know, of living in an environment. I was in the, the Minneapolis version of it, which is not, you know, which is not LA, but I was very much in that, in that same kind of energy. And then going on tour was a major adjustment. And I remember that, you know, when we came back to Minneapolis, I think that you weren't on the last like week or two of that tour. You had like health stuff or something. Yeah. And so you weren't with us when we rode back into Minneapolis, but I, like, I cried, man. Like I cried just coming back into a mostly black environment because I had left it for those two months. And, you know, you're, you're helping me navigate that was so, was so powerful and so important. And I still remember things that you told me because of, you know, again, you're, you're uh, living in between these two spaces and having to, having to negotiate it and really having to be okay with it. Have, being able to synthesize and like, what does it mean for me to be on this stage? I'm driven. I remember you told me one time, we know why we're here. They might never know why we're here. Some of them might, but they might know, they might not know. You know what I'm saying? But we have to know why am I standing on this stage? Why am I writing this song? Why am I saying this rhyme? Why am I at the, on this tour? Why am I in this van? Why am I sleeping on this floor? As long as I know why I'm here, I don't need anybody else to understand that. Like there are certain certain things you said to me in those in those early, you know, it was a th three months that we were on the road that I still live by, man, and I've survived by. I think like a lot of our generation didn't get God, thank you know, man, thank God. Um, we didn't have Vietnam. 
You know what I mean? We didn't have World War II. We didn't have the Korean War. But going out on an indie rap tour, I don't know what it's like to go to war. But for me, like, you know, we come from living in a black neighborhood where there is legitimate life and death. Mm-hmm. And then going in with a group of men on a ship. Maybe it's like more like I, Deadliest Catch. Now there's something that before I didn't have much to allude to than other than war. But like Deadliest Catch, when they go out on that show and it's life or death for them out there. And that's how it was in that van. And you get to know people, but you also get away from home. And that's what the deadliest catch people. They're not escaping anything. We were on an escape pod, but even still kind of in a deadly situation. You know what I mean? In these new environments where, and if I moved from Linwood, California, which is right next door to Compton and Watts, it doesn't get a lot of props on the rap scene. But it was very, 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 very gang infested neighborhood. You know what I mean? Um, and I moved to the whitest part of Southern California, San Gabriel Valley, Glendora, California. And I met two types of people. Like first, you know, we got dropped off. We're, we're latchkey kids. We moved to a new neighborhood. There's no time. My, my parents don't get two weeks to adjust. They're back to work. And now they got my, my stepfather had to drive from the San Gabriel Valley to the San Fernando Valley. Anyone from LA will understand. So he got up at 4.30 in the morning to, to be a, a janitor at Van Nuys High School. So he was gone and not home till seven and comes home high, drunk, pissed, rightfully so after all that traffic and cleaning toilets and shit like that. Mm. My mom is doing a, a similar commute. So they drop us off at the park. And first day, second day, some guy calls my brother a, a nigger. Mm. Bop! No questions asked. Right. Knocked out two of his teeth. Fuck? What the fuck you mean? <laughs> Where are we at? What are we doing? And it was such a, I, the violence was so shocking to them. And it was like, what do you mean? You said something. I, I, like I said, my mom, I say something. She goes upside my head. Mm-hmm. You you say something. You must be ready for this. Yeah. Next day, someone, someone said, like a, couple, a week later, someone said, they were about to kick us out of daycare, which can't happen because my parents can't afford to live here if they don't work. Mm-hmm. So I got to learn this new way of being. Yes. Like, y'all don't play tackle football? We can't be friends after we fight? What you, like, we still tripping? Like, to me, we're all from the same neighborhood. We're at the same park. So we squab amongst each other. It's good because we got to squab against somebody else. Right, like, right. And then I met the black kids. After I spent all summer learning, like, okay, we ride bikes. We play two-hand touch. We, we, you know, it's not called, excuse my French on both. It's not called murder the fo- murder football here. We call it murder football because we tackle you on the street. We tackle you, whatever. They call it smear the queer, which was atrocious. I forgot about you know it. Yeah, I mean? that I'm was like, very real. Yeah, man. I was like, that's what you guys call it? So I was like, okay. And by the time I left there, we had to move back after three and a half years of being out there. But I was a changed person. And I took that's why I was able to navigate it with you. Like these white people think that this is this. Let me, but had I never done that, I would have been in a gang. I would have been from neighborhood Crip in Linwood. I would have, oh, God knows where I would. You know, like we heard songs like the Bataram and walking to school the next day, there was a house on Beach Boulevard that was knocked down by a Bataram, a tank with a metal plate on it. You know, this was rap. Gangster rap was my life, you know? And so then I moved and saw, I was buying gangster rap tapes with white kids and I got to see firsthand like how they were fascinated, how they were titillated by the experience that I was just living three months ago. And now I'm teaching them how to steal rap tapes about this stuff from the warehouse and from Sam Goody. 
and how to resell these sodas we stole from like I'm teaching them and they're thrilled to no end. So I got and then I got bullied by these white kids. And and then I got once I rose up to the bullying. I got to I became the bad guy. Like It was cool when he was calling me nappy headed this and blah, blah, blah. And then when I busted his lip, I'm also the bad guy. So for for him picking on me, he's cool for me defending myself. I mean, he picks on me, then I'm still an asshole because I'm the I'm the nigger. I'm the asshole. But then if this nigger busts his lip, then I'm still a nigger and an asshole. So it, there's no way to win. And right. I understood that. So when I'm at the merch table, at least now I have a goal. Like my goal, my mother had to teach me like your goal, you're here to get an education. And I guess that's my grandfather's thing too. Like I'm not here to march and fight the civil rights struggle. I'm here to get from point A to point B richer than I was at point A. So all this other shit, I can't take time to react because there's no money in that. Then when we got on tour, there was money in navigating this this white shit. Cool, man. Like, yeah, you gonna bro hug me? Like you're gonna spit in my face when you're talking to me? You're not doing that to be offensive. You think that this is cool. Right. You know, and another thing too is like, you're doing for me what the white guys wouldn't do with me in high school. They wouldn't bro down with me. Now I got white guys paying me and broing down with me. Fuck it, I'll take mm-hmm. it. But yeah. back in the days, homeboy that was doing it, he I couldn't even break into that circle. Now I'm cool to white kids and they pay me and they support my art and they actually value me. So I can see that what you're doing yes. is culturally offensive to me, but it doesn't mean that you're you're not trying to bully me. I've been bullied by white people, and this is not how white people bully each other. Mm. I'm part, you're part, I like Ali, you're part of the club. They like you. They're they're feeling you. They just don't know the codes of black America where you can't just grab on me, bro. You can't just put your arm around my neck. That means something. Right. Like this is the beginning of a like this is the beginning of a fight. You know what I mean? Yeah. So if we're gonna fight, I already can't see very well. And this is your city, so <laughs> like if 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 this is the beginning of a fight, then let's go to the part where I'm yeah, yeah, yeah man. Like don't like you know it, it was it took a it took that those three years, and it's funny that I ended up helping you adjust because you were in the reverse situation that I was in coming from coming out of that. And and I remember that as well, where you were like they genuinely care about what you're saying. Because I wasn't sure about that. There was a point where I was like, man, you know, especially, you know, as a, you know, artist that looks like the people in the audience, like white people are like, oh, that guy is me. That's my champion. And so then they start listing all their favorite rappers. And it's like, man, I love the good rap. I love you and Vinnie Paz and Eminem and Bubba Sparks. And and it's like, yo, it's like, it's like, what do I have in common with Vinnie Paz and Bubba Sparks? You know what I'm saying? Other than what Paul Mooney said, the, the complexion for the protection. You know what I'm saying? Like, what 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 other is there in common? And I remember you. That wasn't on the first tour, but it was a few a few more years in. You were like, "No, man, there are people here who genuinely care about what you're saying. Like, you're actually touching them." And you know, it makes them uncomfortable, mm-hmm. and because they're receiving it. If they weren't mm-hmm. receiving it, they'd be like the other white people who listen to mainstream rap and don't get it or listen to, you know, if it just, if it goes over your head, you're not offended by something that you don't, you know, I was watching this Instagram thing where the lady was like, if I curse at you in a language you don't understand, you don't know, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Unless I'm using fervor or, you know what I mean? But even then you may not, may or may not get it. But these people, they may react to it wrong, but at least mm-hmm. they're reacting. That means they're receiving it. You know what I mean? And 
they try to get it and they have good intentions. But, you know, we definitely I have my issues with my fan base and my fan base has their issues with me. Mm. You know, uh, this is an observation that I've always had. And, and, you know, I've never asked you about it or, or put it in these specific words, but it always seems as though you've been looking to build um, another, like it always seems like you've been looking to add on to to the the universe that you're creating. And so, you know, you stepping into the space of, you know, co-creating paid dues and really paid dues is your idea. You've been saying this since I, we first met. You're saying like, I want to bring all of these people together, you know, all these different independent artists that think that they're so different from one another and have a festival where we can all be together so we can see that your fans are the same people as so-and-so's fans. And if they're, if they're not each other's fans, they can be, you know what I mean? Because this, the, the drive that we all have is so similar. The, the love that we have for this is so, is so similar, but whether it's, you know, creating pay dues or also you're branching out and working with the different labels, you know, having worked with Rhyme Sayers, worked with uh, Def Jooks, worked with Strange Music, you know, co-creator and, and one of the, the main artists on Living Legends, even going into, you know, being on Atlantic, it always felt like you were trying to, to level up. It always looked like, it always felt like you were grateful for what you had and for what existed, but that there was something else that you were looking to establish and that 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 thing might be the thing to make it all make sense and really truly bring it all together. Like, how, how does that sound to you as an observation? And and man, and what does that look like? Like, what would that mean to you? Like, if you were to actually create the environment where Merce, the artist, Nick, the person, the music that you've been making, the the scene that you've been envisioning, what does that look like? Man, I don't, I don't know, because that hasn't been my thing. Like, this whole conversation is really, um, it's giving me a lot of perspective. Like. You know, I talked about a couple other rappers and like I always try not to be offensive because I'm too old to be fighting anybody or having beef. You know what I mean? But my I can't help that I'm uncomfortable in my own body because I'm too polarizing things that we've discussed, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think my discomfort makes other people uncomfortable, of course, because I'm uncomfortable. And I think I keep moving from scene to scene, label to label, because I'm always I'm never comfortable. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if I'm ever going to be comfortable. Mm-hmm. But where I have found comfort is what I'm doing now with my program called Ground Waves, where it's an open mic, usually in an underrepresented, underserved community, and that doesn't mean black for once, you know? It's for <laughs> Fort Collins, Colorado, Northwest Arkansas, or Tulsa. And those are all, so Tulsa's a very white black crowd, but it's underrepresented on the global hip hop scene. Um, and these programs are funded by philanthropic organizations, by very rich white people that can fund me being there. So when I'm there, I am just giving. My time is paid for. Um, so my family understands why I have to be away. And I am focused on giving you, and I'm not worried about whether you're going to give me a feature back, whether you're going to pay this forward. I am here to keep the culture. I I wasn't trying to expand. I was just trying to, you know, on my first tape, or my second tape, I have an outro from Pulp Fiction, which is my favorite movie, but um. It's funny because he linked it to David Carradine and Kung Fu. 
He's like, I'm just going to walk the earth like Cain and Kung Fu. And one of the first books I bought on Eastern philosophy was David Carradine because I had no idea. I was just a black kid with axes. Like, this has a yin and yang symbol. This is the dude from Kung Fu. I had no idea David Carradine wasn't of Asian descent or what, you know? But that's how I started learning about Taoism and just <laughs> and not walking the earth like Cain and Kung Fu and getting adventures. That's all I wanted to do. And um, that's what I'm still doing. And now I feel like I can set up shop and teach from my experience because I teach these kids. I don't start with, hey, I'm Merce. I rap with Kendrick Lamar. I also I also uh, did the breakdown of Hip Hop DX. I also started a festival, I, you know. But once I start talking, kids will listen and then they'll come back to me like, yo, my homie couldn't believe I sat down with you. And then I started looking at, oh, shit. Like, you know, like, there's videos of you talking to Tyler. I'm like, yeah. Like, oh, man. And so now they're receiving what I'm saying. And now I'm in that place to be the person that I wish would have told me, hey, you're rapping off beat. Now we can get back to what I told you about your raps. Now, yeah, 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 I did all that, blah, blah, blah. Now, can you hold the mic like this, bro? You know what I mean? And understand that you're not, you may not go platinum. You may not ever get a thousand views or whatever. But when you leave here... I hope that you're able to articulate your point of view, take direction and give direction. And you're a better human. You know what I mean? And I think mm-hmm. that's what it looks like for me now is me being able for one week out of the month or two weeks out of the month, being able to travel and spread the culture um, and, and and just, you know, positivity and love through this medium that we talked about in the beginning that I've been in love with since I went, I touched it, you know what I mean? And I get to touch other people via And I think, to me, that's what it looks like. I, you know, and it gives me the authority to speak on, when I go to Tulsa, there's kids who rap over their vocals the whole time because they don't know. And they think that I hate trap music. I'm like, no, I love Triple X, I love Lil Peep. Because of my paid dues mentality, I'm always listening to what people are listening to. I like, I love Triple, I love everything you're talking about. Right. But you can do that without rapping over your vocals. I'm not going to try to change your style or what you're saying. Because like I said, the, the 50-year-old... Right. But you, yeah. you're going to get this MC pedigree together. Like you need to have it together. Like whatever style of music you're doing, that's fine. Do it well. But you need to be able to do it well. Get the ba- and, and that's you gotta what get your, I, I, you gotta I'm get here to give you. And how to promote it. How to market. There's not, just not How to throw a show. There's nothing about hip hop that I can't tell you. And I'm not trying to tell you what to say. I'm trying to tell you how to do it better. I'm not even trying to tell you how to say it. You know what I'm saying? I'm just trying to tell you how to say what I can identify with your style. And I, and, or I'll, but not like some kid introduced me to something called hyper pop. And now I got to play hyper pop playlist because I want to see who's doing it the best at what you'd like. And then I could tell you how to get there. I may not know the genre, but there's one common thread through all performance and emceeing and business structure and all that. And I can help, but I can use examples from this person to help you because you're not going to feel what I'm saying. Grew two different flowers, you know, but I can teach you how to grow that garden. So you're right. Like you're go, you're going to get, and like I was always telling, like you're not going to be platinum. You may not even be able to make a living out of this, but you'll be able to apply. Indie rap will prepare you for anything. I survived a major label being on an indie label. Um, one of the first brothers that uh, ever took me on tour, Kamani from the Masterminds. He left, and maybe I don't know. He'll be mad, but uh, he uh, he left hip hop, had a label, quit it, and got a job in real corporate America. 
And he would call me and be like, hey, man, have you checked out World Star? I'm like, nah, oh, this is so funny. I'd be in the middle of my rap work day. Like, bro, I can't talk to you all day. Don't you have a job? You don't get fired. You don't get fired. Nah, I'm all good. I'm good. I'm good. Mm. And he's like, Nick, like, I show up on time. I leave a little bit later than I'm supposed to on purpose. I get all my work done in the first two hours, and these people think that I'm a genius. Because everyone here has been on this track. They don't know what it's like to really work hard, to have to drive eight hours, to get to the show, to set up your merch booth, to do the sound check, to do the show, to shake the hands and sell the merch after, to pack it all up, to get back to the hotel, to go to sleep, to wake up, to do it again. You know, like you said, God Loves Ugly Tour, 62 more times for nothing. And then maybe have to get in a fight and maybe maybe get you know maybe the the security guard at the hotel doesn't want to let us in our own rooms and maybe we get locked out of something and maybe we check in a hotel and there's like hair dye and bullets in the in the in the sink and and we're like wiping wiping the 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 door handle on the way out like hey we need a different room who knows and so he's like they don't get it so i always tell the kids like if you're not a rapper when you leave here Mm -hmm. or if you if you pursue indie rap or rap long enough Mm -hmm. you'll be able to plug in and play Anywhere. When you go to a job interview, even, if you learn how to get on stage in a room full of strangers and do a song, when they ask you, why are you qualified for this job? You could look one person right in the eye and go, hey, if you learn how to freestyle, like all these things have, like it's kind of like Mr. Miyagi. That's what I feel. Like you look like you're waxing the car right now, but when you get into some <laughs> real action. Right, right, and, uh, right. And I always tell too, like especially the way music yes. is now, you record something and what I'm recording now, and I don't know if you record in this place, but my sons will have this. My grandchildren will listen to this podcast. You know, our kids have met each other lightly and briefly. Sean's kids and my kids have played together a little more. And they'll be like, oh, shoot, our dads did this album together. We have this album. And then when we they were making this album, we were playing in your backyard. And this song is talking to me. Or like, now I'm going through a breakup and my dad, you know, if I'm not here... God willing, I am, but my dad's not here, but he made this whole song about breakup. Like, I've gotten so many people through, and I'm honored and not bragging, but through suicide or through that. And one day, this might get my kid through it if I can't reach them. Or I will, what I always tell the kids when I'm helping them too, is like, not only am I paid to be here, but I have little boys that spit on their head. My son is nine years old. He has a, a backpack full of spray cans and a peace book. And he, my son's scratch on the right. They love hip hop. And if I don't make sure you guys have it together and you're successful, then you're not going to be able to pay it forward to them. So I'm here selfishly. And also you guys are just the humans that will be controlling the earth when my little humans grow up. So if I can do anything for you guys, call me, DM me, listen to what I'm saying, because this is selfish. I'm not altruistic. I'm getting paid to be here and I'm paying it forward so you can pay it forward to my children. If they don't want to, but maybe in the end, all my son has is the breakup song by Merce when he goes through his 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 first divorce. And that would be great with me. Or my grandson. You know, I'm not, I had kids late. You know what I mean? I gave my youth to hip hop. Right. So I'm not going to enjoy my grandkids the way the way mm-hmm. I got to enjoy my grandfather. I'm not going to be able to do those things. So I think about that. Like, what is my art saying? Um, what type of legacy? And that's when when people get confused with legacy, like it means buildings and money, and that's great too. As I sit in the the space that my grandfather created right. seventy years ago, for me to be in. Allah, but also, I you know, 
I he created this space so that I can create things in this space that will live on because I like I said, I gave my life to hip hop. I gave a lot of my youth to helping others and helping myself. And now I won't be able to give that to my grandchildren and understanding that coming, being at peace with it. Cause it makes me cry sometimes it, you know, like, um, I think about how much I love my grandfather and how much I've got to tell him and swim with him. And, you know, being able to go to our land with my family. Um, so I've been blessed in ways and I know that I have to pay it forward. And sometimes I get caught up, you know, right now, most recently was the Rolling Stone, 200 albums. I'm like, yo, like, I don't got one album on there. And then I always check myself. I could be like, okay, Shadows on the Sun ain't on there. Like, like, like Ali got a catalog. Sean got a catalog. There's not one Atmosphere, Brother Ali, or Merce album on this list. Fuck out of here, bro. Right. But my blessings don't come from Rolling Stone. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Most hey, of my man, heroes don't appear on no stamp. On no stamps. So I... I'm good, bro. Yeah. But, you know, you've been in this culture so long, when I look at the list of people who are creating this list, I know some of those people. And I'm like, for real, bro? Yeah. But I know they're arguing with uh, other people who don't feel the same way. Yeah. So I'm like, I know where I'm at. I know, like, when I walk this street mm-hmm. right now, when I come out in South Central, I'm Horace Bauer's grandson. I'm Vivian Bauer's son. That's how they know me. The dude on the corner, around the corner, OG, he... He he don't know our rap. He thinks I do graffiti. He you know, I'm just weird cuz they're like, oh yeah, oh the little weird weird nigga that's with the okay. Don't touch him. He's good. And that's what I, when I go to the LA Galaxy game, when I'm at the Slauson swap meet, my kids don't see that that person loves 316. They just see that people love and genuinely respect me wherever I go. And that means more than wrong. But you know, I get caught up in Eagles and I'm like, oh man, why did we make that list? And like honestly, I don't, I don't care. I got what really matters and I got everything I wanted. And when I go up to that mic, like you said, when I get up to that mic, we're going to see what's what. They let me through. Yeah. We're going to see you know, what's and, what. And they know, like, you know, I remember walking through South by Southwest and he doesn't know it, but, you know, like, J. Cole stopped what he was doing and was like, that's Merce, walked all the way over, over to me to shake my hand. And I'm like, that's, that's the clout I'm looking for. Like the best, you people who you think are the best also respect me. You may not respect me, but you're kind of inconsequential. I know we're long, we're going long, and Brendan, is Brendan in charge of this? No, we, you are. <laughs> okay, yeah, man. <laughs> but I think this is a good place to wrap, man. I think, um, you know, as long as we can make sure that we do another one, because there's a hundred things that I haven't had a chance to ask you Yeah, yet. man, I'm, I'm here for it. I would like to to continue this conversation. Thank you. I'm sorry. So grateful to my man, Merce. You know, this is only the first half of the conversation. We ended up talking for well over four hours. Uh, A lot of it got really personal. And so we had to do some trimming. Brendan, BK1, had to do some trimming. You know, there's times where we, because we're such dear friends and, you know, Merce has known my wife since we met, you know. Really beautiful stuff. Really, really beautiful. This is one of those like long-term friendships that really means so much. In the second half of this podcast, it'll drop next week, inshallah. I'm really asking Merce a lot about festivals and about real cultural curation. And so you'll hear about, you know, some of these violent incidences that have happened in other in other festivals. And Merce really gets into how important it is for curators of these 
events that are seen as entertainment to really be deeply connected to the culture and to the people you know, that, that, that bring this beautiful art to life. So a lot of really dope conversation in uh, part two of this episode. I can't wait for you to hear it. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you to all of our partners. Special thanks to Amna Mirza, Mansour Panawala, and Mark from Medina, who created the stamp logo for the podcast. Special thanks to my man, Ant. Uh, special thanks to Ida Rashid. Special thanks to everybody that contributes in different ways to this podcast. My man, uh, last word, my DJ. Uh, head to brotherali.com, check out all the stuff we got going on, like, share, subscribe, really do all of that stuff with the podcast. You know, we, we're growing this thing organically. You are such an important and intrinsic part of it. So if you're digging this, share it, uh, like it, subscribe to it, comment on it, rate it, share it, all of the above, all of that stuff that people say on their podcast. I used to hear people say that stuff and they're like, man, it's, it, it almost becomes like the uh, like the instructions on the airplane when they're like, you know, this pull this down and pull that like that. Your seat also becomes a, you hear it so much that it's like, uh, whatever. But then once there's turbulence on the plane, you start being like, okay, so wait, so how do I get this seat back to turn into a flotation device? Now that I'm doing a podcast, now I know that all that like, share, subscribe stuff, I'd be like, man, people tell me in my DMs all the time, yo, this podcast is amazing. I'm like, please comment on YouTube, comment wherever you're watching it, listening to it, like it, share it, you know what I'm saying? Share it out to your friends. That's how it grows. That's how we make sure that the people that would like it get a chance to check it out. We love you. We appreciate you. We're wishing you and your families well. We see you next week with the second part of our Merce episode. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.